briefly last week, was his teaching on the nature of mind, where he said, this mind, O monks, is luminous, but it is clouded by visiting defilements. The mind is luminous, but it is clouded by visiting defilements. So what does this mean in our practice? When we hear a sound, it's very simple. It's just hearing. Or we feel a breath. It's just feeling the sensations of the breath or a movement. In that simple knowing, there's no problem. And it reveals the nature of awareness, the nature of consciousness is in itself clear, open, unobstructed, uncomplicated, empty, like space. Just hearing, just seeing, just smelling, just thinking. The question arises then, what obscures this simple natural clarity? If this is the nature of our awareness, the nature of consciousness, the nature of our minds, why is it that so often we're not in touch with it? Why don't we see our minds and live our lives from this place of ease, from this place of peace? When we look carefully at our minds, we see that what clouds this natural clarity and what creates suffering for us, both in our meditation practice and in our lives, are the different afflictive emotions. And that's one translation of the Pali word kalesa, which is sometimes translated as defilement. But I like the term afflictive emotion because in a way it makes it more real for us, more tangible. Now emotions, mind states, like anger or fear or jealousy, Resentment, greed, envy, ill will, frustration, depression, grief, shame. And there's a long, long list of these afflictive emotions. Now it's quite natural that at different times these emotions arise. Our challenge is to learn how to work with them skillfully so that we can experience the freedom in the midst of them. The Buddha went on to say in that stanza, the mind, O monks, is luminous, but it is clouded by visiting defilements. The mind, monks, is luminous, and it is freed from visiting defilements. So he's saying very clearly that it's possible to learn how to free ourselves from immersion in these mind states, these emotions, these kalesas that cause so much suffering. So the first steps in doing this, and there's a fairly clear progression of what we need to do, how we can learn to free ourselves. The first steps in working with these emotions are an acknowledgement of them and an acceptance of them. 
And there's a wide range in our abilities among all of us. The wide range in our abilities to know what we're feeling. Maybe men have a slight disadvantage here. Because for some it's very difficult. You know, we, we know we may be feeling something, but it may not be clear what it is that we're actually feeling. We might feel out of touch. For others, we know what it is. We know what we're feeling, but might very often be lost in these emotions, be carried away by them. So the first step is learning how to acknowledge, how to connect quite precisely with these mind states, with these kalesas, these afflictive emotions as they arise so that we can acknowledge them, so we know what's going on. One way of doing this, in its simple way, is to key into the physical sensations of our body. You know, feelings of tightness, of contraction, of agitation, of tension. Sometimes these sensations are remnants of old feelings. So they're not always indicative of a current kalesa. But sometimes they are a clue. When we're feeling very tight in our body, or agitated, the physical sensation at times is a clue that there's some mind state going on. And so that can remind us then to look, to see. There's an important caveat here. And that is, we don't want to be interpreting every sensation that we feel. You know, so we have a pain in the knee, oh, that means I must be feeling grief, or sadness, or... It's not a question of interpreting the sensations. Rather, when they're strong, particularly contracting ones or agitating ones, it simply becomes a reminder to us to then look to see if there is some strong emotion present. So it can be a kind of wake-up bell for us. Another way of connecting with what we're feeling is to pay particular attention when we have the sense, we have a feeling simply of being unhappy, out of sorts where things are not easeful. And at that time, at those times when things are not easeful, we can then trace it back. We can look to see, is there some kalesa? Is there some afflictive emotion present? It might be worry. It might be anxiety. It might be fear. You know, we could make a list of the top three or four that come regularly because we all have, you know, our own patterns of the kalesas. And the more familiar we become with them, the more easily we can recognize them when they arise. So keying into the body, the physical sensations, paying attention when there's some sense of unease, 
looking more carefully. Pay attention when you find yourselves in the middle of some action. And it could be an action of body, it could be an action of speech, it could be an action of mind. That just doesn't feel right. You know, that doesn't feel so good to us. That sense of things not feeling quite right is an indication that there is probably some calasis, some afflictive emotion arising in the mind. Maybe it's quite subtle. The feeling of not quite rightness becomes a clue then. Sometimes we don't recognize what's happening because we're not open to the full range of emotions that might be there. As you know, very often emotions don't come in just nice, single, neat little packages. Often there's a constellation of feelings, which can be confusing for us. They don't come simply as single events. Just as an example of this, might be a feeling of anger. And if we look more carefully, if we look underneath the anger, we might see feelings of hurt, of fear, of self-righteousness, of frustration, these underground emotions which are actually fueling the anger. So in times of suffering, when we feel like we're caught, and we recognize the surface one, but it still feels like the mind is caught, that something is fueling it, but it's hard to let go of it, then look underneath. See if there's an underground spring of an unacknowledged emotion. This kind of investigation of looking underneath is not discursive. So it's not that we sit there and think about this. And it's it's also not digging into our psychological history because that's all on the thought level. Rather, it's the kind of investigation that's just intuitive in the moment. We feel like we're caught. We may recognize the surface one, but it still feels caught. And it's just reminding ourselves, open to the possibility of something underneath. Sometimes we don't recognize what's happening because we're misperceiving it. We're aware that there's some strong mind state, some strong emotion present, and we're naming it, but we're naming it incorrectly. And so that's another way that we stay disconnected. We take one feeling, one emotion, to be another. I'll just give you one example that came up for me in my practice. And one time in my in a retreat, I was just going through this incredible period of sadness. You know, and I was just sad, sad. I was and I was noting. I was noting this, but it, it really felt locked in. So at a certain point I did this exercise. I said, Well what really is this? I looked more carefully and I saw that it wasn't sadness. It was unhappiness. 
And these two feelings are very close, but they're not the same. It's really a different feeling. And as soon as I saw it precisely, it was as if my mind aligned with what was actually there, instead of being slightly misaligned. And the alignment is what was necessary to be fully accepting of it. So it was just a very good lesson for me to check that out when we feel caught in something and we think we know what it is, but it still seems to stay locked in. It just could be worth checking to see, okay, take a more careful look. Do we really see it clearly? Very often, you know, our emotional states are are confused. We're uncertain. And a technique that I found very helpful is the use of just a simple question. When something's going on and can't see clearly, but are caught in it, I would just raise the question in my mind, what's happening? And the what's happening, asking the question, serves the purpose of simply stepping back from the immersion in it, from the involvement in it. It's as if we step back and just open up, what's happening here? And the answer to that, at times, could be something as general as confusion, or chaos, or fog. But in the stepping back and seeing that, we are already freeing ourselves from being lost in it. We're bringing mindfulness to it. We're changing our relationship to it. We begin to experience some sense of freedom, of ease. The clear recognition of what's present is the basis for the essential next step. Because it's not enough to simply recognize, and recognize accurately, the different afflictive emotions that might arise. The next essential step is a mindful acceptance. Now sometimes people confuse acceptance of emotions and mind states, and they think that it means justifying them, or condoning them, or wallowing them. It's none of these things. Mindful acceptance doesn't mean that we're getting lost in them. It doesn't mean that we're justifying them, that we're judging them. Rather, it's simply the full acknowledgement that this emotion, this kalesa, is present. So really, acceptance here is another word for mindfulness. When we can accept that a difficult mind state is present, we can really get to that place of acceptance. It helps us to not hold on. It helps us to not be lost in what's arising. An indication of non-acceptance is when we have that sense of inner struggle. So if you're sitting or walking different times during the day and you have a sense of struggle, 
that is excellent feedback that something is going on that we're not accepting. Because if we were accepting it, we wouldn't be struggling. So use that sense of struggle to really pay attention. Okay, what is here now that I'm not accepting, that I'm not opening to? You know, one of the retreats I did in Burma at the at the monastery, unlike here, it was just incredibly noisy. I mean, the, the monastery was surrounded by villages, and I was in a dormitory. Right outside my window was at the edge, the boundary of the monastery, so there was a wall, and just over the wall was this little village. And the village women would come and wash their clothes, and the way they wash clothes there is pounding it on rocks. So for hours, you know, I'd be sitting there and this pounding noise. That was on one side. On the other side, in the monastery, they were doing construction almost the whole time I was there. And they were banging metal on metal, you know, straightening these steel V-bars. I was sitting there. <laughs> I felt like I was going crazy. <laughs> You know, sure, I came to get enlightened, and just this amazing amount of relentless noise. And I was really caught. I was caught in a lot of afflictive emotions. Caught in my own reactions. But then I asked that question. I said, okay, what's happening here? What is happening in my mind? And I saw that my mind was just complaining. So I just started like complaining mind. It was amazing. As soon as I saw that that's what was going on, and as soon as I could accept it, there was no problem. It was just hearing. And it was only when I wasn't open to it, wasn't accepting, I was in that kind of inner struggle. A friend just today told me a story of uh, Munindra, my first teacher. Uh, he was visiting Munindraji, and Munindraji asked this friend, you know, what's the cause of suffering? And the friend answered, you know, the usual desire, attachment. And he said, Munindra just shook his head. I said, no. You. You are the cause of suffering. <laughs> it, was, it was just a great story because it was just this reminder that it's not, the suffering is not coming from the outside. It's coming from what we're doing, how we're relating. And that noise and the complaining mind and the seeing of was just a good example of this. I was causing the suffering. It wasn't the external situation. Sometimes we don't recognize or accept what's present because emotions can be too painful or too uncomfortable. You know, the, the calaises, some of them, are just just as the sensations in the body can be painful, 
mind states are more so. The Buddha said that the suffering of the mind is much worse than the suffering of the body. You know, I think we've all had that experience where, at least with the bodily pain, it's usually possible to get some distance and to just observe it, to isolate it in a certain way. But when we're caught in the kalesis, in the afflictive emotions, there's often that feel of just total pervasiveness. So it's a real challenge to be with those that seem too painful to be with. We don't like opening to them. Or maybe we don't open because they don't fit our idea of what should be arising in a spiritual person. Good meditators don't get greedy. Good meditators don't get angry. They're always truthful. Therefore, greed, dishonesty, or anger can't be arising. this This denial of what's there can lead to tremendous self-delusion. So we want to be careful about any image that we're carrying of the spiritual person, the good yogi. Because as long as we're unwilling to be with certain emotions, as long as we feel closed to certain emotions, we are living defensively. We're living in fear, trying to protect ourselves from feeling them. The poet Rilke had a few lines which which really expresses this beautifully. He said, I want to unfold. I don't want to stay folded anywhere. Because where I am folded, there I am a lie. You know, it's really, I think it's a great image of meditation practice. It's just the sense of unfolding all the places where we're folded. With very painful mind states, very painful emotions, sometimes it's necessary to open slowly. You know, and particularly if we're reliving old traumas, abuse or whatever, really, really traumatic events in our lives, the feelings can be so powerful that they can overwhelm the mind. So there are times when that might be happening where we need to open in a very measured way, learn how to regulate how fast all this stuff is happening. Sometimes there's a backing off that's necessary if we're losing our balance. You know, if we're getting overwhelmed, we need to back off, regain the balance, regain the strength to again be with them. First step is recognition of what's there. The recognition, clear recognition, makes possible acceptance. From acceptance, we can begin to bring a very clear wisdom to this world of emotion. We begin to apply what has very aptly been called, in modern terminology, emotional intelligence. And this is, in this context particularly, the ability to distinguish between wholesome and unwholesome mind states between those states that lead to more suffering 
and those states that lead to happiness. Now, this wise discernment of skillful and unskillful states is basic to the Buddha's teachings. But in our culture especially, it's a delicate matter. Because given our, you might say, cultural psychology, for many people, it's a very easy step from saying a particular mind state is unskillful, like pride or anger or greed. It's a very easy step from saying and seeing that, that those mind states are unskillful to the feeling that I'm a bad person for having them. This happens very easily. Or that it's somehow wrong that they're arising. If we take that step from the clear discernment of this is skillful, this is unskillful, to then judging ourselves for having the emotion, it simply leads to less acceptance, to more self-judgment, even more afflictive emotions. It's not a helpful cycle. So it's important to see and understand which mind states are wholesome, which are unwholesome, not in order to judge ourselves, and not in order to be reactive to the emotions themselves, but in order to see which should be cultivated, developed, and which should be let go of, which abandoned. Thich Nhat Hanh has this beautiful little teaching. He said, Buddhism is a clever way to enjoy life. Happiness is available. Please help yourselves to it. Well, how do we help ourselves to it? Precisely through this discernment. We see which emotions, which mind states lead to happiness. We see which leads to suffering. If we don't experience this emotional intelligence, it's very easy to stay locked into patterns of suffering throughout our entire lives. Because some unskillful states are very seductive. And if we're not exercising this wise discernment, we just keep repeating these patterns. In talking about anger and the seductive power of anger, and the way we can justify it to ourselves. Well, I should feel angry. The Buddha referred to anger, said, anger with its poisoned root and honeyed tip. You know, and we get seduced by the honey tips, the kind of feeling of strength it may bring, or the feeling of self-righteousness that we have, or the feeling of power, and not seeing its poisoned root. This distinction between skillful and unskillful mental states, which is so emphasized in the Buddhist teachings, is really what brings a moral dimension into psychology. It brings an ethical dimension to psychology. And just as the Buddha did it, 
2,500 years ago, this is what we need to do today. It feels particularly important now, and it probably has always felt just as important, but given what is happening in the world today, we need to realize that these mind states are not simply you know, little thought forms or feeling states that are arising in our minds. But these states are also what motivates our actions. When we look at what's happening in the world, we might ask, why is there so much avoidable suffering? And there's, there's a huge amount of suffering that's going on that need not be. You know, violence and war and hunger and injustice. What's happening? It's afflictive emotions playing themselves out. That's what's happening. Not, that's what the cause is of all the suffering is. So it's not only out there. We need to see how this is happening in our own minds and how it plays out in our own lives. Some distinctions between wholesome and unwholesome are very obvious. There's, there's really no question about it. It's very clear that when the mind is filled with hatred, it's painful for oneself and harmful, tremendously harmful for others. When we're feeling love, it's very obvious that it brings happiness to ourselves and it brings happiness to others. So this is very clear. And the same is true the difference between greed and generosity. And we can see these distinctions clearly. But there are some subtle distinctions where we sometimes misperceive taking what is unskillful to be skillful. So that's worth paying attention to, because we don't want to be acting out unskillful emotions, mind states, under the delusion that they're wholesome. So I'll just give you a few examples. The difference between attachment and love. You know, for a lot of people, these two states are very intertwined and intermingled. And even think that it's the same thing. You know, well, I love my family, or I love my spouse, or I love my friends, or whatever. And it's almost synonymous with being attached to them. But when we look carefully, we see these are two very different states. You know, the feeling of love in my experience, is an offering. It's a gift. It's, it's a generosity of the heart. The feeling of attachment is a holding. It's a, it's a pulling in. Two very different energies. And yet it's pretty rare, I think, for people to take the time and develop the discernment to see the difference between these two and to see that we can have love without attachment. It's not an easy task, but it's definitely worth investigating. Another difference, another pair where we often mistake the unwholesome for wholesome 
is the difference between guilt and remorse. You know, we might have actually done some unskillful things in our lives, and they come up in our minds. So a very common response is a feeling of guilt. And in one retreat, this was coming up very strongly for me. Now, there was one particular thing, and it came up to my mind, and I was, my mind was just wallowing in guilt. But there was so much suffering in that. And for me, suffering is a great... I just get really interested, because I wonder, what is going on here? You know, why is my mind caught in, in such a strong way? So I really looked at the nature of guilt. And as I observed it, I saw that guilt is really an ego trip. Because what guilt is doing is reinforcing the sense of self in a negative way. Saying, I'm so bad. I, 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 I am so bad, 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 bad. And when I saw that, it was like, I was reminded of you know, something you, you read in the text where Mara comes to, to the Buddha in one form or another, and sometimes the Buddha will say, Mara, I see you. So I, and I always imagine kind of the Buddha wagging his finger. <laughs> so I, I developed this thing, wagging the finger at Mara. So when guilt came, oh, Mara, I see you. This is just a trick of Mara, a trick of the ego. And I saw the difference between guilt which is this negative strengthening of self between that and remorse, where there is the real acknowledgement. Yes, there's, you know, I did an unskillful act. We open to it, we see it, we take responsibility for it. And we also can let it go. It really makes pos possible the attitude of forgiveness. With guilt, there's no forgiveness. And that's why it's so painful and stays so locked in. We're not allowing ourselves to see the impermanence of whatever happened. So again, this distinction either locks us, if we don't see it, locks us in suffering. If we do see it, it can really open up a much greater place of ease. Attachment and love. Guilt and remorse. Indifference and equanimity. It's often confused. Indifference can be taken to be equanimity. Where we're just in this state, this very indifferent state, and then we think, oh yes, this is, this is great equanimity. It's not equanimity. Indifference is a pulling back. It's, an in, it's a withdrawal from experience. It's a not caring not a wholesome state. Equanimity is total openness and impartiality. That's very different than non-caring, than withdrawal. Equanimity is like the sky, you know, a space which embraces everything, which holds everything impartially. Two very different mind states. We can distinguish the difference between grief and loss. And this is a delicate this is a delicate subject. 
because on the one hand, in some way, I think our culture honors grief. And the Buddha is saying, grief is an unwholesome state. Well, that's, those are fighting words. Because grief comes. You know, and it seems a very natural part of the process. So again, when we say it's an unwholesome state, it's not to then think that we should feel bad for having it come or that it shouldn't come, but rather it's a wise discernment here. The Buddha in one, in one sutta says, grief is like a dart in the heart and we should pull out the dart of grief. Well, one little opening to this possibility came when I, I, I juxtaposed two different aspects of the teachings. You know, in one, the Buddha commented on the death of Sariputta and Moggallana, you know, two of his chief disciples. And I'm not sure where this reference is exactly, but I remember reading it someplace. <laughs> He said, you know, it, it was like the light of the sun and the moon left the sky. Or some great trees in the forest had been cut down. You know, their, their presence in the Sangha was so powerful and so important. And the Buddha was acknowledging the loss to the Sangha. And yet in the Satipatthana Sutta, the opening paragraph of the Sutta said, this is the direct way for the overcoming of pain, the overcoming of grief the overcoming of lamentation. So when I saw these two together, well, how could he be one time acknowledging the profound loss of Sariputta and Moggallana? And yet he clearly had overcome grief, overcome sorrow, overcome lamentation. So it clicked. Now, these may be two very different feelings. The feeling of loss and the feeling of grief. Loss is just another word for change. Somebody is there and then they're not there. And there's a feeling of loss and it's an unpleasant feeling. We don't like the feeling. It's a painful feeling. And if we can't accept the pain of the feeling of loss then it might be that we very well rebound into grief. And so I just began to consider the possibility that grief was the non-acceptance of loss. And it may well be that there is a grieving process until we can accept the loss. But I feel if we see it clearly, then it may not need to be years in in the... in the making. We really see what's involved and bring our attention, bring our minds, bring that openness to the feeling of loss. It may be a much quicker process. 
So there's a lot. There's a lot of discernment in terms of understanding and looking. What mind states are wholesome? What mind states are unwholesome? Which lead to suffering? Which lead to peace? And not just to kind of accept the cultural norms. We really have to see and investigate for ourselves. So the last step is the recognition, the clear recognition of the kalesas, the afflictive emotions as they arise, and, and getting clarity, getting clear about what, what it is. Coming to a place of acceptance, distinguishing between wholesome and unwholesome, or exercising that emotional intelligence, emotional wisdom. And the last step, the most freeing step in working with the kalesas, is the most difficult and the most liberating. And that is learning to open to them all, learning to feel them all, without identifying with them. It's this understanding that makes possible the transformation of whatever emotion arises, whether skillful or unskillful, transformation into wisdom. So what does non-identification with emotions mean? It means not being lost in them, not being carried away, not taking them to be self. Now, so often as the emotions come, just our pattern This is me. This is who I am. This is self. So an exercise to practice this quality of non-identification would be to see the difference when some mind state, some emotion is present, to see the difference between experiencing it as I'm sad, I'm happy, I'm angry, I'm depressed, I'm impatient. The difference between that and seeing anger is present, sadness is present, frustration is present. Just acknowledging that the emotion is present without adding that extra piece of I and mine. And notice when that feeling of self is strong in the emotion, we can feel the contraction of it. That's like we're imprisoned by that state. But this is a difficult part of the practice because emotions are what we most personalize. It's just so natural and so easy when we're in the midst of some emotion. Yes, this is me. This is who I am. So it takes energy, it really takes an interest, takes this real investigation to see the possibility of opening to the mental states, to the emotional states, without the added piece of self, without that identification.
one way of doing this is to explore a little more carefully the conditioned nature of emotions so that we really understand how emotions arise out of conditions. When we see that, when we see that cause and effect relationship, it's much easier to understand the impersonality. So I just want to mention a few ways of keying in to the conditional nature of emotions. One way that I found very interesting in watching my mind is to see how very often a thought triggers an emotion. You know, so I'll be sitting or walking and a particular thought will come into the mind, uninvited, and if I'm not totally mindful of the thought, the thought itself could be very quick, very fleeting, and yet it could trigger a flood of emotion. And it's amazing, just biochemically it's amazing. You know, how this quick little thing, and you can feel, you can kind of feel this rush of energy. Well, just to see that, it's pretty interesting. You know, we see, yeah, this emotion just arose conditioned by that thought. And we begin to not take it so personally. Another way of understanding the conditionality of emotions is to realize that they're very determined or conditioned by our level of understanding. And so for one person, what might be very upsetting might leave another person completely at ease. And this is kind of summed up in a, a, a Zen haiku. The barns burnt down. Now I can see the moon. How many people, my house, that <laughs> my house is burned down. Now I can see the moon. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it shows, I mean, there's a whole, you know, levels of understanding. We even what might be very difficult for one is leaves another person really at ease. So in this respect, we can engage our inner Dharma coach. You know, when we are caught in the suffering, when we're not seeing the emotion as just arising out of conditions, when we are personalizing it. We can use that inner Dharma coach to remind us in a variety of ways that this is a conditioned phenomena. And a few examples just been working with recently. There was a situation arose recently that really triggered a strong reaction in me of, shall we say, ill will. <laughs> just something happened. I was really caught in this annoyance, anger, ill will. But I was, I was watching it. I was, I was really trying to work with it because it's not pleasant. 
It's so clearly a state of suffering. So I just remembered different aspects of the teachings, which very much helped me. One was the teaching of the Dalai Lama, you know, who has dealt with so much suffering in his life. I mean, one of his one of his great lines, and this comes from Shanti Deva, the Bodhisattva's way of life, that one's enemies teaches one's patience. And so we should really value our enemies. Now, enemy is a, is, that's a strong word for. But we know what it means. You know, somebody we're having difficulty with. Our enemies teach us patience. We should value them. Well, in the midst of the feeling of ill will, that's a challenge. You know, to reorient one's understanding, to be thankful for that person, to that person, because it helps us actually strengthen that quality of patience. It, very, it was a very helpful reminder. It took me a little bit you know, out of the story. Then the other night, I saw, I was watching, probably shouldn't tell you this, but I was watching a video. (laughs) You're watching the videos of your mind. But it was a very intense movie about World War II and the Warsaw Ghetto. You know, I mean, just the atrocities of that time. And this was in the midst of this whole little story that's happening. And I thought, what am I angry about? You know, this little story that's happening is absolutely nothing. You know, relative to the suffering and the magnitude of suffering in the world. And so it was amazing. Just really putting it in perspective so freed my mind. You know, and just, just allowed me to not take it and myself so seriously. So we can work with this. The the last teaching on this, which I found really helpful, is comes from the Middle End Sayings. And I brought this back to mind a lot. And again, it helps free us from the identification we might have with a kalesa, with a difficult emotion, especially when it involves other people. So this is from the Sutta. Bhikkhus, there are five courses of speech that others may use when they address you. Their speech may be timely or untimely, true or untrue, gentle or harsh, connected with good or connected with harm, spoken with a mind of loving-kindness with a mind of inner hurt, inner hate. Here in Bhikkhus you should train yourself thus. Our minds will remain unaffected. We shall utter no unskillful words. We shall abide compassionate for their welfare with a mind of loving-kindness. And starting with this person, pervade all the world with a mind imbued with loving-kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility, without ill will. 
It's such a direct and powerful teaching of what we need to practice. And it was so relevant because the, the, my mind state was very much conditioned by words that were harsh, words that were untrue. And it was just it was like the Buddha was speaking to me, that people will address us in this variety of ways, and we can't control that. And regardless of how people address us, we should train ourselves thus. And so it's just a powerful reminder that our life is a training. You know, and in life situations and in intensive retreat, these things will come up. And we're not, I think, arhans. And so kalesas, afflictive emotions, will arise. But they can become a situation of training and of really practicing being free with them. So we practice recognition and acceptance of afflictive emotions. So we're not in denial. So we're not in unawareness. We really practice recognizing them and accepting them. We practice non-identification so we're not lost in them, not carried away by them. These practices, and they are practices. No, it's not that we'll be able to do this perfectly, but we can use every situation of an afflictive emotion arising to practice in this way. It opens the possibility of a much greater happiness and a much greater ease in our lives. We practice liberating all of these emotions, letting them arise and pass away in the open, luminous nature of mind. Let's sit for a couple of minutes. May the merit of our practice be dedicated to the welfare, the happiness, and liberation of all beings. <laughs>